conversations. Greetings, everybody, from this side of the Pacific. It's time for our first Cis-Pacific podcast in a long time. Good night. Rahul, and I'm here with the lovely Rebecca Fosky. Today, we're going to be talking about cirrhosis. Uh, This is going to be a two-part podcast, actually. Today, we're going to be talking about cirrhosis and the etiology and pathophysiology and clinical signs of it. And there'll be a follow-up podcast with uh, some of the complications and how to manage them. So we're going to start with a case, as per usual. we got Brian, a 33-year-old mechanical engineer who's dragged to the emergency department by his wife because he spent a good part of the year complaining about abdominal pain and spends a lot of time lying in bed when he gets home from designing Formula One spoilers. Good on you, Brian. All right, so you said that this was about cirrhosis. Tell me what that is. Yeah, so cirrhosis is a histopathologically defined entity, which basically means that, you know, you traditionally it's been defined by taking a sample of the liver and having a look at how it looks. And the key things that you see when you look at the liver are fibrosis, architectural distortion of the liver, and formation of these regenerative nodules. Uh, and so the result of all of this is that you get lose liver mass, you lose liver function, and you get alter the alter, very specific alterations in blood flow to the liver. Mm. So, so basically what's happening is the, the macrophages of the liver, the Kupfer cells in association with the hepatic stellate cells, are going in there mopping up the mess after any kind of inflama- inflammatory insult to the liver. And they're trying to help there with the healing, but chronically the activation of these cells leads to increased deposition of collagen and extracellular matrix and bingo you have cirrhosis yeah so in short you get some sort of insult to the liver that causes inflammation ongoing inflammation leads to fibrosis which i feel is like the problem with like 90 percent of the organs in the body so bam there you go um and then so there's this thing called decompensated cirrhosis which basically means that you've developed some major complication of cirrhosis and it's a negative prognostic marker so once you become decompensated your risk of dying, et cetera, liver failure, transplant is much higher. So what are the classic decompensated criteria or things that could lead you to being called decompensated, Beck? Yeah, so what can go wrong? You can mm. get jaundice, you can get ascites or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, which is pretty much infected ascites. Mm-hmm. Variceal hemorrhages, so there's those varices. Uh, hepatic encephalopathy, hepatorenal syndrome, hepatopulmonary syndrome, Hepatoma or hepatocellular carcinoma, so your liver cancer. Yeah. And we'll go into all of this in another podcast. Yeah, so that's a nice list for you. But essentially, we'll talk about that in the complications um, podcast. And so I guess one of the other things to learn about uh, cirrhosis is that in med school, you're told that cirrhosis is irreversible by definition. And it's always sort of once you get it, then it's just a path down towards liver transplant or death. But essentially, we found that cirrhosis can be reversed in a number of things these days. So particularly in hepatitis C treatment, you can actually reverse the fibrosis in the liver. So there is hope. Yeah, sometimes. sometimes. There is sometimes yeah, yeah, a yeah, little bit go, of hope. Yeah, don't go spruiking hope to all your cirrhosis patients. Exactly. So so the, the causes of cirrhosis are many and varied. What are the, what are the main ones? So the big four, I think, are always the hepatitis C and hepatitis B. So the viral hepatitis C's. Hepatitis uh, and alcoholic liver disease, obviously, is a big problem in our society, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is becoming more and more prevalent these days. And those ones make up about half of the people on the transplant list in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So if we talk a little bit more about each one of these individually, alcoholic cirrhosis, how does that work? So again, you get toxic damage to the liver, which causes those Kupfer cells to activate and starts laying down fibrosis. Uh, And essentially, no matter what you suspect the type of liver damage is, the initial type of liver damage, you need to take a extensive alcohol history because all the others get made worse by the presence of alcohol. So, yeah. Um, And then I guess the other big one is viral hepatitis, 
Do you want to tell us about that, Beck? Yeah, so Hep C is a good one because it always used to be more or less a death sentence in the end once that got progressed. But now we have a cure for it, which is really exciting. So 20 to 30% of people with chronic hepatitis C do end up developing cirrhosis long term. And the way that this works is mostly through immune-mediated damage. So the virus itself isn't actually the one that's going in there killing the cells. It's the immune system. The cure now is direct-acting antivirals, and we won't get too into this, but basically once those medications are given, you can cure hepatitis C, and early cirrhosis itself can also be reversible. Exciting stuff. Um, and then hepatitis B as well. So a much lower amount of people with hepatitis, chronic hepatitis B develop cirrhosis, only 5%. Um, and again, so you can't cure hepatitis B, but the therapies for viral suppression can also reverse cirrhosis there, which is good news for those people. So that's, that's the viral hepatitis. We talked about alcohol. And then the other big one is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which progresses to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Do you want to tell us about that, Beck? Yeah, so NAFLD. Um, is increasingly common, as you'd imagine, in a society where everyone's obese and everyone's got their metabolic syndrome. So what we're actually realizing now is that what used to be called cryptogenic cirrhosis or cirrhosis of unknown cause is probably caused by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And basically that's a spectrum of things. It starts off with fatty liver and then that progresses to fibrosis or non-alcoholic steatohepatosis. And in the end, that can cause cirrhosis. Yeah, yeah. So it progresses to hepatitis and then fibrosis, which is the cirrhosis. Yeah. Mm. Not not all the people, in fact, very few of the people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease become uh, hepatitis, non-alcoholic step steatohepatitis. No. But yeah, some portion do, and then some portion of those go on to cirrhosis as well. So yeah, the four big ones are alcoholism, the chronic viral hepatitis, hepatitis, hepatitis B and C, and uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. But there is like a big old list that also exists. So we're just going to bark some names at you and then like say like one thing that's important about each one of these and then just see if you can digest this or if you forget it by the end of the podcast. Let's see how it goes. So autoimmune hepatitis, which is obviously an autoimmune hepatitis. Can you tell me one or two things about that, Beck? That I, I think that's the that's crucial. the key bit there. The auto, autoimmune hepatitis yeah, yeah. is autoimmune hepatitis. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they present with like late stage or already established cirrhosis. Because what happens is it's such a violent uh, hepatitis that by the time they get to you, they've already burnt out the liver. Um, so what about the biliary causes, which comes down to two things, main things, which are primary biliary uh, cirrhosis and primary sclerosing cholangitis. Yeah, so primary biliary cirrhosis, or PBC, is usually the 50-plus-year-old women. And when I was a med student, for some reason, I remember this as Betty, like primary Betty cirrhosis. And I thought of Betty as, I don't know. That that one won't age well, but hopefully now that helps you. Old old women, um, predominantly, they present with fatigue and anti-mitochondrial antibodies are very specific for this. Yeah, so it's one of those AMA antibodies you just kind of remember. Um, And then PSC, what's like the one distinguishing primary sclerosis and cholangitis yeah so you um usually this is associated with ulcerative colitis and you diagnose it with it on an mrcp or ercp yeah so the ulcerative colitis thing is a classic like med student association then you got these inherited ones which you read about in like tally and o'connor but you don't actually see very often oh, you see hemochromatosis i guess so hemochromatosis is one which is an iron storage disease um, and the majority of people who have hemochromatosis do not end up with cirrhosis. In fact, it's very rare. Uh, then you've got Wilson's disease, which is the copper storage disease. I always remember because of the Kaiser Flasher rings. That's like, 
You'll, you'll never see it in real life. You never. will see it in your med student yeah, exams. Yeah, and then and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency as well, which is also you may, may be familiar to you from uh, COPD. It's one of the causes of COPD, but it also causes liver disease. Um, and it's rare, again, the most common in the ZZ genotype, if you really want to get specific, but don't worry about that. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Um, then there's the most important form of cirrhosis, which is cardiac cirrhosis. Um, this is basically a build-up pressure from a failing heart, which transmits through the veins down to the... Um, to the liver and congest it and cause it to eventually become cirrhotic. Then there's a billion other causes, but we won't get into those. Yeah, really what you want to stick with there is hepatitis B, hepatitis C, alcohol, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah, which actually leads us nicely into a Med Conversations recap break. This is a new section. I hope everyone loves it. We've been workshopping this for ages, you know, took some of the brightest minds in Med Conversations. We've had some good focus groups. <laughs> All right, so what we've learned so far. Cirrhosis is when the liver becomes fibrotic and architecturally distorted. What's it caused by? It's caused by anything inflammatory, any inflammatory insult to the liver, which um, makes the Kupfer cells work over time and the stellate cells induce a whole bunch of fibrosis. We said the four major causes, hepatitis C and B, alcoholic liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then decompensated cirrhosis is constituted by the presence of anything from jaundice, ascites, variceal hemorrhage, hepatic encephalopathy, hepatorenal or hepatopulmonary syndrome, or hepatocarcinoma. Hepatocellular carcinoma. So, Nailed it. Yep. All right. So we're nine and a half minutes in, and I think it's time to hear a bit more from Brian. Yeah. So you take a good history from Brian and find that he's been fatigued over the last two months. He's had intermittent right upper quadrant pain, right where your liver is, just from your anatomy exams, and he's had fevers as well. His wife tells you he's become more yellow, and Brian says he's become itchier and itchier. So you take on even more of a history and you find out that four years ago, Brian and his wife were major speedballers shooting up coke and heroin every weekend and hitting the town. However, that is a habit they let die with dubstep. He's always been a teetotaler, though, he tells you, and he hates the alcohol industry for what it's done to the youth. So you decide to examine this odd man, and you find that he is jaundiced and has spider angiomas on his chest, a mildly tender but small liver, and flank dullness on percussion. What an examination. That was fantastic. Yeah, well done. What a history. (laughs) So if we start off, we're just going to go through talking about the clinical manifestations of cirrhosis. Let's start off with the symptoms. Okay, so there's a bit of overlap with hepatitis for some of these. So fever, fatigue, and weight loss, just constitutional stuff. I feel a bit shitty. And then there's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal discomfort, sometimes up in the right upper quadrant, sometimes just generalized. So that's all the like non-specific stuff. But then there's the hepatic decompensation slash more specific to cirrhosis stuff. And what does that consist of, Beck? Yeah, so we'll talk more about the pathophysiology of all of this in another podcast. So sorry to throw a list at you, but the first one is jaundice. So jaundice can cause pruritus, and this mostly happens in the biliary cirrhosis, but can happen in any kind of cirrhosis that causes an increase in your bilirubin. Which makes sense, right? I mean, you're scarring up your biliary tree, so none of the bilirubin is getting excreted, and then it goes up in your skin, and bilirubin in your skin is, yeah, and you get itchy. So then there's upper GI bleeding, uh, which consists of hematemesis, melina, or PR bleeding, you know, so melina or PR bleeding if it's sort of like going all the way through fast or slow. Uh, And that's basically a sign of a variceal rupture of some variety slow or fast um and then what's mental status changes or sleep disturbance related to beck yeah so this is related to hepatic encephalopathy and there's different stages of that you can start off being just a little bit off not quite right and you can be hyperactive but as it progresses you become more and more hypoactive until you're completely comatose yeah like decerebrate cerebrate and comatose 
Um, and then there's abdominal swelling and peripheral edema. So if you've ever seen like a chronic liver cirrhosis patient, you sometimes see that they're really muscle wasted, but they've got this huge abdomen. And that's due to ascites, like fluid in the abdomen in the peritoneal space, um, which is because of a whole bunch of changes with the blood flow we were talking about before, which uh, all relates to portal venous hypertension. So we'll talk a bit more about that later, but that's a complex process that leads to one of these, pretty much a lot of these complications. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a common misunderstanding that so that um, ascites is due to hypoalbuminemia, but actually the main cause is the portal hypertension, and that's been a question previously on um, basic physicians exams. Oh, there you go. Uh, and then in men and women, you get this like sex hormone related stuff. So in cirrhosis, there is some complex changes in sex hormones. And one of the things that women, they'll get amenorrhea, so they won't have their period. And men will become will become hypogonad. So like, they will become hypogonad. <laughs> I am hypogonad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so then there's the, so that was all the, the symptoms. Then there's the clinical signs. And this is one of the, cla- we were talking about this before. It's one of the classic things he asked again and again in med school to list the signs of cirrhosis. So we can start with just the vital signs, which is what, what sort of things would you see in a cirrhotic patient back? Yeah, so you might see the obvious ones are hypotension. So there's splanchnic vasodilation. Splanchnic. Really, I feel like we need to take a moment to just discuss this word, splanchnic. <laughs> it's such a great word. I, do you say it's splanchnic, honestly, or is that it's like splank, Splanchnic? Yeah, I, don't, I actually don't know. I think it's splanchnic. Splanchnic. I like wow. splanchnic. There's a lot of people who've been laughing. <laughs> so I think it means entrails. Oh, really? In Greek. Oh, okay, nice. But someone might need to fact check that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, you so how to pronounce it until that if, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so there's splanchnic vasodilation, and that causes hypotension. So that's the first thing. Looking at low blood pressure. That's a complicated process, by the way. But essentially, there's a few more things going on yeah. there. Yeah, and then uh, there might be a compensatory tachycardia. Yeah. So to just rule out hypotension. Then on the general appearance, like I said, once you see a cirrhotic patient, I feel like it's something that sticks in your head. So you get this very catabolic person who's very skinny and all the muscles are wasted away. They're generally pretty yellow from all the bilirubin that's in them. Um, they've got scratch marks or may have scratch marks because the bilirubin is itchy once it gets high enough. Um, they have a sweet smelling breath, which uh, is basically a sign of all this gut stuff that's not getting processed by the liver getting into the circulation. And this is a pretty late sign. I've actually yeah. never smelt it. Oh, really? But I, I, I don't know if I just... Maybe I, I imagine get, it. I don't get I'm close like, enough. Yeah, let's smell that fetal hepaticus on this guy. <laughs> um, decreasing blood pressure, again, related to what we were talking about before. And then confusion, disorientation, which is generally being inappropriate, again, because of that hepatic encephalopathy. Mm, which, again, is a, is a bad sign. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's bad. You don't want that. Okay. So then if we sort of go, go up the body from distal to proximal, having a look at the hands... You might see evidence of alcoholism, so palmar erythema is a big one, um, digital clubbing or teres nails, which is when the proximal two-thirds of the nail is white. Mm. It's a sign of cirrhosis. Instead of just that little lunar albia, whatever it's called uh, down there, you the pretty much almost all the nail becomes white. Mm. Dupatron's contracture, which is an alcoholism-related thing, which is, uh, I think, poorly understood, but anyway, fibrosis, and they, the last two fingers start to become like a claw hand. So that's the hands. Uh, in the chest and the arms, there's like a classic one. What is it, Beck? Um, gynecomastia? No, no. <laughs> Whenever you say gynecomastia in the arms, you know something's really wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, the spider angiomata, or spider, ang- spider angiomas, which are little vascular arterial lesions, and no one really knows why that happens, but they look like a dot with just little spider legs coming out of them, red dot. And if you press on them with a glass slide, because you happen to carry a glass slide with you everywhere, you can see I do. the central arteriole pulsing, and that's how you 
traditionally know that it's a spider angioma. Um, you can get that in a few other things in pregnancy, uh, but it is related to sex hormone changes. Uh, mm. There's also muscle wasting, like we discussed before. So arms will be really small, chest will be small, but they will have gynecomastia and loss of chest hair, which again is sex hormone related. Mm, so there's some extra estradiol out there in mm. circulation. Now coming to the, the money shot, the abdomen. Yeah, so there's a bit of stuff in here. Um, if we first talk about caput medusae, mm. so what are they? So caput medusae is described as so around the umbilicus, you have uh, all these blue veins radiating out there and they become really obvious, superficial on the abdomen and it's described because it looks like Medusa's head with snakes coming out of it. Uh, basically, there's a vein called the umbilical vein, which fibroses up after you're born, but it becomes patent again because of that high pressure in the portal vein system. So then all the blood starts flowing through there and you get these big veins on your abdomen, on your big swollen abdomen. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of big swollen abdomen... This is usually because of ascites. So that's when there's an accumulation of fluid in the peritoneal cavity. So the way that you find that is you can percuss the abdomen and you might feel flank or listen or hear flank dullness. Mm. And it's called shifting dullness because you percuss it out. You hear where it stops being tympanic and it starts to become dull. Get the patient to lie on their side and see if it moves, which suggests that the dullness is from fluid. Yeah. But you actually need one and a half liters of fluid to be able to percuss out ascites so it's not a subtle thing yeah and and of all so there's a few other ways you can look at ascites clinically but of all of them that's actually the most sensitive one so you still need one and a half liters before you can actually clinically examine it right so it's is it so that's better than feeling for a fluid yeah, thrill yeah so fluid thrill is when you like sort of tap the um, stomach and see if the other side shakes essentially it's kind of um, like a waterbed yeah yeah it's actually a very good description one of my best buddies in high school had a waterbed and i sometimes like go to his house it was incredibly uncomfortable uh, have you ever slept on a waterbed before uh, no, I don't think I have. And an absolute pain as well. Like he'd have to fill this thing up and like heat it up. It was, it was terrible. Don't buy a waterbed. Um, but yeah, so, and then we, uh, we're not sponsored by a mattress company, by the way. Although if any mattress companies <laughs> out there are listening to this, we are open to sponsorship. Um, and then the last thing is something you'll, oh, well, actually we should talk about hepatomegaly and splenomegaly. Yeah, I think that's probably related. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything special about hepatomegaly, Beck? I'm not sure where that question was leading. Probably <laughs> no, no, yes. <laughs> an honest question. Um, so, so hepatomegaly is a bit hard because in acute hepatitis, it does get bigger. And in alcohol-related cirrhosis, alcoholics get big cirrhotic livers, but everyone else kind of gets a smaller liver. So it doesn't really tell you that much if they have a big liver, but it can sort of indicate to you that something's wrong that's coming from the liver. Yeah, um, but, then, but most of the time when you're examining these patients with cirrhosis, you can't feel their liver at all because it's this little shrunken, shriveled up, fibrosed thing. Yeah. Uh, and then splenomegaly, so big spleen, uh, usually is asymptomatic, but you can feel it on the exam, but occasionally it can be so big that it's painful. Mm. Uh, that's pretty rare. And then the last thing that I was going to talk about is the Cruvelier Baumgarten murmur. So this is like classic one. You can just bust out on one of the, what are they called again? Bedside shoots. Um, and you put the stethoscope over the epigastrium and you can hear a venous hum. And it's quite obvious. You know, it's, uh, I'm not sure exactly what caused it. I think it's just higher flows through the portal venous system. And I think then, the most important thing there is being able to spell it. Yeah, but which, we'll leave that for episode two. I'm looking at the word right now. I still don't think I can spell it. <laughs> um, so then there's peripheral edema and asterixis, which is a sign of hepatic encephalopathy. Which when you get them to hold their arms up like they're stopping a bus, and their arms, their hands flap around. Mm, and sometimes that needs a bit of provocation. So you might need to flex their fingers back for them. Mm. Okay, so lots of stuff in there. I think it's probably time for another Med Conversations recap break. I love this section. It's my favorite <laughs> section now. Um, so the three major causes to remember: number one, Beck. 
Hepatitis C. Number two. Alcoholic liver disease. Number three. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I think we yeah. previously yeah, had four, four. causes yeah, If you want to be really diligent, what's the fourth one? <laughs> Hepatitis B. Correct, yeah. Um, symptoms of cirrhosis. So mostly just vague constitutional symptoms, a bit of mild upper abdominal discomfort. Unless you're getting some of those complications, in which case you might have ascites or GI bleeding. Which would probably be a sign. Yeah, that's true. But I guess you abdominal could, you could complain. Well. You could complain of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so right. what, what are the signs? Really quickly. Uh, so vital signs. You've got hypotension with a possible compensatory tachycardia. Your jaundice. Um, evidence of anemia and cephalopathy. In the hands, you get palmar erythema and hepatic flap. On the chest, you get those spider angiomas and gynecomastia. The abdomen, you've got the superficial veins all over the abdomen. Big swollen abdomen, splenomegaly, and can't feel the liver because it's too small or it's a little bit big in alcoholics and in the lower limbs you've got edema so these signs you're not going to see in everyone with cirrhosis it depends Mm. on how bad it is what the cause is and whether it's decompensated yeah but very good um what's happening with brian yeah let's get back to him so you order some blood tests and contemplate trying to cannulate his caput medusa just to see what would happen (laughs) i don't know every time i see them i'm like i I could i could get a caput i could do that (laughs) so you find that brian has an ast uh, of 200 and an alt of 150 his ggt and alp are mildly elevated but his bilirubin is 30 just slightly slightly high and his platelets are low his albumin and INR are both normal, and his UECs are unremarkable. You also do a liver screen. You're not 100% sure what you've even ordered, but you ordered some stuff that had hepatitis. You searched in the pathology system for anything with HEPA and just entered that <laughs> in, and you found out that he's got hepatitis C antibodies and a positive hepatitis C RNA. So let's talk about some of these lab studies. Now I'm back from America. I call them labs. <laughs> um, so not all, sorry for having American listeners. I do like you guys. It's a lot of fun being there. I like that they're called labs. Yeah. Um, so not all patients need a biopsy. And what's some of the what's one of the problems with a biopsy? So the thing with a biopsy is that you're sampling the size of the end of a needle. It's a really small amount of a very big organ. Mm. And when I I saw a lecture on this recently, and they showed a big slide that was all painted in liver coloured pinky red, and then they had one sa- one pixel of that blacked out and i think their point was that you're not getting the whole thing you might miss it that's your sample size so so sometimes a biopsy doesn't catch it and we do try and avoid biopsy if we don't need yeah to do one it's not a yeah all procedures come with risk so let's go to lfts the liver function tests (gasps) but are they actually liver function tests (laughs) so they the lfts at least the transaminases are actually released during periods of liver damage but they're not actually they don't mark the liver function um so it's kind of a misnomer, but you know, don't worry too much about it. So generally, they're moderately elevated, but essentially in cirrhosis, if you have really bad cirrhosis, you've got no more liver left, there's nothing left to damage, there's nothing left to release all these enzymes, so mm. you don't actually get any, you don't have normal LFTs. Mm. Um, so in cirrhotics, there is this kind of rule that the AST is higher than the ALT, but it's not a particularly good rule. There are some other rules like in alcoholics with acute alcoholic hepatitis, the AST is two times the ALT. Um, in all other forms, generally the ALT is higher than the AST. I don't know. I, it's not been a huge yield thing for me. What do you think? No, though? no. Uh, I think I think that the AST to ALT two to one thing is pretty useful. But like you say, once they end up cirrhotic, all the rules go out the window. Yeah, exactly. And you don't know when you're catching these people. And honestly, you know, if you ask someone if they drink before and they tell you, you know, I've been having ten drinks a night for the last two years, it's a lot better than your AST to ALT ratio. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So then you've got the the cholestatic ones, the ALP and the GGT. So they're usually higher, obviously, in cholestatic disease, which if you could tie us back, back, what were those? Yeah, so PSC and PBC. Yeah, so all those biliary cirrhoses. Uh, 
And the GGT, everyone probably knows this, is higher in alcoholics. So if you measure it after a night of drinking, it'll generally be higher and also cholestatic disease. Um, bilirubin can be normal at the start of cirrhosis, but as things get worse, there's more scarring, then it tends to rise. Yeah, and so this is a marker of cirrhotic severity as well. Yeah, decompensation. It's used in a lot of the prognostic scores. And then albumin as well, also used in a lot of the prognostic scores. And why does albumin, what happens to albumin? Why does it? Why does it happen there? So albumin is made or synthesized in the liver. So if the liver is not working properly, then there's less albumin being made. So it's non-specific, but it can be used to grade cirrhosis because this one actually is a true liver function yeah. test. It's actually this testing the function of the liver. Yeah. Similar with bilirubin. I mean, you're, that's part of your liver's function. Mm. And um, INR, which is the next thing, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it leads on nicely to INR. So the liver synthesizes a lot of the um, coagulation factors essential to that make up your INR, so 2, 7, 9, and 10. And most of these proteins are synthesized in the liver. And when the, when the liver starts to lose its synthetic function, the INR increases. Um, so, yeah. And part of that, the INR also increases because you don't absorb vitamin K properly because you have malabsorption in liver disease. But that's only part of the story. So. Yeah. It's a little bit complicated. Mm. So I think we'll leave it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about the FBE. The old humble FBE. Everybody's favorite investigation. Yeah. Uh, so you get thrombocytopenia due to that hypersplenism, that splenomegaly. And essentially, what's happening there? Why does the spleen seemingly chew up um, platelets back? Yeah, so it's mostly sequestration. Yeah, so it's actually just storing all the platelets in the spleen. So they have a normal platelet mass overall. It's just that they're all stored in the spleen. Yeah. But they do get some platelet dysfunction. So they, that still does predispose them to bleeding a little bit. Mm. And then late signs, you can get general white blood cell sequestration as well in the spleen. Um, and so that'll go down as well. And anemia, which is multifactorial, particularly yeah. if you've got an alcoholic who's now like you know impairing their red blood cell production in multiple ways. But so just look essentially for a lack of all the blood cells, particularly thrombocytopenia, um, and then the electrolytes as well, which are super important in some cases. But so what's the major thing there? Yeah, well, I think there's there's sort of two major things. One of them is looking at the sodium. So you tend to see hyponatremia, and that's because there's or because of a variety of causes. But one of those main things is there's increased ADH secretion. And that's because of the splanchnic vasodilation telling the body, I'm hypotensive, initiate those usual pathways that you initiate when you're hypotensive. So that's the renin-angiotensin pathway. Um, and also the vasopressin pathway, yeah. Which, yeah, so, so there's extra ADH secretion as well as a few other things, and that causes an excess of water it's not a salt deficiency there's a normal amount of salt in there but there's too much water so it's really diluted so you're not getting rid of free water in case anyone's confused so adh and vasopressin are the same thing because I, mm. I guess that didn't click for me for a while but and vasopressin whilst also you know retaining free water also uh, constricts your blood vessels so when you're hypotensive the body is trying to like get all the free water on board and also constrict the blood vessels mm. uh, another thing in the uec is the creatinine and this becomes most important in hepatorenal syndrome, so later stages of cirrhosis. Yeah, and again, that's hepatorenal syndrome. We'll talk about it later, but it's a kind of complex um, process, which is tied to all of this stuff. Um, so we mentioned Brian had a liver screen. What is a liver screen? Uh, it's a question not... that any junior doctor is asking yeah, themselves. All the... <laughs> there is really no answer to this. It is kind of a thing that I find gastro just order to save themselves a bit of time when they come and see a patient who's suspected of having some sort of hepatitis. Um, so what do you put in a liver screen? So, so to be honest, it, it depends on what the situation is. It's different if you've got a patient who's known to have normal LFTs, whose LFTs have just gone off two days after you've started a medication known to cause that. 
But if you really don't know why, particularly if you're admitting a patient, you, you don't know. You haven't seen the patient. <laughs> you haven't seen the patient if you're just treating the LFTs. Yeah. So what I like to look for is the viral. I do a viral hepatitis screen. I look for basic toxins, so really just paracetamol. And I do a bit of a, um, a screen for any autoimmune things. And then I check the synthetic function of the liver. So what I write on my slip ends up being hepatitis A serology, Hepatitis v, B, um, surface antibody, surface antigen, core antibody, core antigen, hep C, serology, paracetamol level, ANA, anti-liver kidney, anti-smooth muscle. I check for the coags and I do iron studies as well. A lot of stuff there. I mean, really, you should probably take a history and based on some of the things we talked about earlier, you should be able to sort of divine which direction is heading in. And then on top of that, you probably want to start with a liver ultrasound, which has a pretty, or an abdominal ultrasound, pretty good sensitivity and specificity for identifying cirrhosis. Mm. Um, and then when you start to get into stuff like Wilson's disease and hepatitis E, you know, you really probably want to send that to a specialist, you know, because you haven't found anything with your normal stuff. Yeah, and, and on the expensive. wards, you'd be referring to gastro pretty early. once. Yeah. You, if you think someone has cirrhosis, you're going to need some help. All right, case part four. You swing around to see your buddy Hugh Jass over in uh, radiology. He's been a good mate of yours since med school. And he reluctantly, even though this guy pretty clearly sounds like he has liver disease, that's your water and abdominal ultrasound. He always I remembered that's Hugh a pretty being, reasonable thing to ask. He was never a reasonable guy. That's, you know, he's a, he was a bit of a huge ass, really. <laughs> so, what is, so what does the report say? So your buddy Hugh Jass says the ultrasound shows increased echogenicity of a small liver, which basically means it's more opaque. And there is also evidence of moderate ascites and splenomegaly. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. All right, so moving on to imaging studies, we'll talk a little bit about that. So basically, uh, all of this stuff together comes together in sort of a constellation of hints towards cirrhosis. It's one of those like things where you actually have to think a little bit, which kind of is lame. Um, or not all patients need a biopsy, even though he said it was histopathologically defined. That's just how it is literally defined. But ultrasound is first line and it has a 91% sensitivity and a 94% specificity. It's actually a really good test. Yeah, I actually never realized it was that good. Uh, but so the appearance of the liver can be small or large, depending on the cause, but usually small and nodular with increased echogenicity. Um, the, they can examine the blood flow using ultrasound, which shows that there's alterations in blood flow in the portal circulation and splenomegaly and ascites potentially, if those things are present. And if there are sometimes you might see nodules on there, which we'll talk about a bit about in the next podcast, but that can potentially be cancer. Um, so you need to keep an eye on nodules. Now, there's a couple of flashy things that have come out since then to hopefully increase your sensitivity for all of these, for cirrhosis. And one of them is elastography or fiber scan is the trademark name. And there's also ARFI, which is acoustic radiation force impulse. Which sounds like a badass name. I think Beck is dying to tell us about these things. Dying. So, so these are essentially using similar technology to ultrasound. And what they want to find is how stiff is the liver. And FibroScan rates the stiffness of the liver from F1 to F4. So F4 is cirrhosis. F1 is A-OK, everything looks fine. Or there might be some very early fibrosis. The test is really good and really sensitive and specific if there's no cirrhosis or if, if things look pretty normal. So F1 is a pretty reliable result to get. Once you're into the F2, F3, it's basically the radiologist shrugging their shoulders. It's not really clear what that means. And F4 is a little bit more specific and sensitive for cirrhosis, but still not wonderful. So it's a good rule-out test, and it's a reasonable rule-in test 
But in between that, we don't really know. Not that useful. Interesting. So yeah, just for curiosity's sake, they kind of deliver some sort of impulse to the liver, either with uh, sound force or actually, but with the probe, and then see how they have an algorithm to see how it responds and work that can work out the stiffness of the liver. So that's pretty cool. Mm. Um, there's also CT and MRI, which aren't particularly useful in cirrhosis. Uh, they can't CT. If you happen to have a CT for something else and you see a cirrhotic liver, you can sort of tell, but usually not done as a first line for a suspected cirrhosis, but they are useful in cancer. So we'll talk about that in the next podcast. Mm. Back to B-Rai. Tell me some more about B-Rai. Yeah. B-Ek. So, so he sounds like he's pretty sick. He's got moderate ascites. We know that he's got splenomegaly. I believe you phrased it as fully sick before, not pretty sick. Anyway, his, I'll let him know that he's only pretty sick. His, liver, sick. his liver is fully sick. We don't, <laughs> we don't know exactly how sick. Um, he's got mild hyperbilirubinemia. So all of these things are looking pretty bad. But we know his albumin and INR are normal and he doesn't have any encephalopathy. So what are the scoring systems that you can use to work out the severity of his liver disease? So there's two main ones. There's the child pew score, which has a good eponymous name, and the meld sodium score, or just the meld score is what you may know it by. Uh, the child pew score is sort of the older one, and it was originally used for risk prediction in non TIPS-related surgery, or just like think of it as non-surgery uh, risk in cirrhosis patients. And so it has class A, B, and C, and ranges from 5 to 15 points. And it turns out that these actually correlate pretty well to their one- and two-year survival. C is the worst, A is the best. So what sort of things do they look at in the child pew score, Beck? So it's a really nice score because it only has five things in it. So it looks at the bilirubin, the albumin, the INR, the presence of ascites, and the presence of encephalopathy. Yeah, yeah. So nice and simple. You can essentially do all those things almost without seeing the patient. It's pretty nice. You just like if you kind of look at him. Like he's got a side. He's acting a bit wacky. Do some bloods. Bang! You get yourself a score. You don't have to see him. <laughs> so what I what I do with all these scores is if you can't remember them, that's okay. Just use MedCalc or a similar kind of app on your phone, and and that really helps. And I think that it's not a it's not a cop out. It's a useful tool. Oh yeah. So then yeah. the Meld score. They like the MELD score, but then they decided it'd be better if they added sodium. So, so far it's called the MELD sodium score, but who knows? In another couple of years, it's probably going to be, you know, the MELD sodium, yeah. ascites, <laughs> potassium, creatinine score. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's called the model for end-stage liver disease. It's what MELD stands for. And the main use of it is... Do you uh, know, it actually used to be called the Mayo Clinic end-stage liver yeah, disease Mayo score. Clinic loves to put their name on stuff. Yeah. Something I've learned and then they're like, no, let's make this a bit more general. We'll call it a model. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so basically, the main use of the MELD score these days is for transplant weight loss. So it pretty much predicts like you know when you're going to get a transplant, on top of some other stuff which we'll talk about later. But um, it is too complicated to remember. Use MD Calc. But the main thing, what's the main difference between it and the Child Pew score? Yeah. So the thing that this has that Child Pew doesn't is it looks at the renal function. So what's the creatinine? And is the patient on dialysis? And yeah. otherwise, it's more or less the same. Yeah. It doesn't include encephalopathy. It doesn't include uh, ascites. Yeah. So and it does include sodium now. Brian's score is 13 at this stage, which is sort of middle of the road. Uh, once you get towards 15, by the traditional criteria is when you're looking at transplant, but we'll talk a bit about that later. Yeah. So you, at, at 10, you're looking at referring to a transplant mm. service, but at 15, you're looking at waitlisting. Yeah. But, you know, nothing's black and white in medicine. No. All right. I think we've been... Yabbering on for long enough now. Is it time for a med conversation summary break? I think it is. Do you think this is going to take off? Uh, I think so. It's already <laughs> taken off in my heart. So, All right. Hit me. Uh, so cirrhosis is what, Rebecca? It is when the liver becomes fibrotic and architecturally distorted. Correct. And it's caused by anything inflammatory in the liver that makes the hepatic cupfer cells work over time and start inducing cytokines, which 
then cause the a whole bunch of fibrosis and extracellular matrix to get laid down. And what causes it? What are the main causes? Four major causes, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, alcoholic liver disease, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And what's the definition of decompensated cirrhosis? So decompensated cirrhosis is defined by the presence of any of the complications we talked about earlier. Right, okay. And what are the signs that we're meant to be looking for on examination? So if you suspect a patient might have cirrhosis, you might look for jaundice, ascites, splenomegaly, a hepatic flap, um, the patient's mental status might have changed. Um, Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of stuff, but those are probably the big ones to look at. And take me through the investigation findings, regardless of the cause of cirrhosis. Yeah, so obviously you've got all the stuff that can, you've got to look for your cause of cirrhosis. But on top of that, once you have cirrhosis, in the FB, you can have a general cytopenia. So anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. And the UEC? Hyponatremia, renal failure, so rising creatinine. LFTs? Transaminitis, so a raised LFT or AST. LFT. A raised ALT. It is an LFT. Yeah, that's how I think of it. Um, a raised GGT or ALP, and then a raised hyper, hyper a raised bilirubin or a low albumin. Mm, and the INR can be high too. Correct. Yeah, and that's on the coag. So, what scoring systems do, can you use, Rebecca? So, thank you, MedCalc, for bringing us ChildPUC and the meld sodium scores. Yeah, there's probably heaps. Of, I mean, the rage at the moment is just making up scores left, right, and center. It's an easy way to publish a paper, but. Those are the two big bad boys. So if you guys all just look out for the Med Conversation Cirrhosis score, um, come, I think it's coming to Nedgem. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right, so that was episode one, Phantom Menace. Episode two, Attack of the Clones, is coming soon. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, maybe like five weeks or something like that. No, nah, no, nah, we'll be more diligent about this one. Thanks for listening. Thanks, bye. Bye.